is on page 1054, John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered, and he had said this, that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about the man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are and for all that you've done and all that you will do. Thank you for being here with us, God. And God, I pray over our service. I pray that all of our hearts and minds will be open to your word and that you would change us from the inside out more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. working? We'll assume it is working. Well, I personally am glad I got demoted back to just preaching and not leading music as we did last Sunday. It's good to have all of you friends back. In the Gospel of John, the cleansing of the temple, it happens early. It's here in chapter 2. In the Synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it happens at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So there's much debate about this topic. Did it happen twice in Jesus' ministry? Once at the beginning of his earthly ministry and once at the end? Or did John write this out of order? Why would they let Jesus come back to the temple if he did this three years prior? And I think it's important to remember, friends, that you can trust your Bibles. The biblical authors, they don't hold back some of these challenging things that we see in the Scripture. Maybe he did do it twice. And maybe John wasn't ashamed to put it in there at the beginning. Maybe John's being theological and making a case that Jesus is continuing this reach or this changing of that which is old and bringing it to that which is new. But I took a moment to address this because I think it's important that as we continue to go through this gospel, that the gospel writers are not ashamed to write things that will lead to questions. That 
things will at times be challenging to understand. And I think it's actually proof that these men didn't mind a bit of challenge because they trusted God's word. And it was true that Jesus did go into the temple to cleanse it. And they trusted, and John trusted in particular right here, that it was important for it to be written down. And this cleansing of the temple and its subsequent teaching by Jesus, we will see three things this morning. We will see reverence, we will see resurrection, and we will see reality, a reality. We will see reverence for the house of God, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus, and a reality of the world, the people for whom Jesus came to die for. So will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you know our hearts. And in light of that, you sent your son to die in our place on the cross for our sins, to raise, to give us a newness of life. And that, God, we ask that you would make us holy, that we would revere you, we would worship you for all that you are and all that you do. And we pray that you would do that for us and through us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look again at verse 13. We'll start with the reverence for the house of God. John says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for his house will consume me. And we continue in our theme from last week where we saw Jesus change this water to wine. The old is changed to new. And as water was this purification ritual and was symbolic of this old mosaic order, this new wine becomes in abundance and it is good wine, a symbol of the new covenant. And we see the same thing, this changing of the old guard to the new guard this morning here in the temple. We find ourselves, as John says in the calendar of the nation of Israel, the Passover of the Jews. But if you are like me, you were wondering, why did you put the Passover of the Jews? Only the Jews do celebrate the Passover. So John, what are you doing here? And what I think John is doing here is he's making it clear that the Passover is not celebrated by the Christian community. For the Christian, the final Passover, the only Passover that matters to us is the final Passover, Good Friday, where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And Jesus, he was an obedient Jewish man. He followed the customs and the laws of his day. And like any devout Jewish man of that day, he would return to Jerusalem to celebrate this most important festival of Passover with the rest of the nation as they would worship God. And here, seemingly, Jesus is beginning his 
public ministry. If you recall from last week, he was at a private wedding with some close family or friends, and now he is out in the open, out with the rest of the nation of Israel, but also in the most important place of worship for the Jewish people. Passover, which the nation of Israel celebrated every year. It commemorated, as you're familiar probably, with their exodus from Egypt. They celebrated with a Passover lamb. They spread the blood of that lamb on the doorpost as God came through and took the lives of the firstborn sons of the Egyptian people. The nation of Israel was spared. And some scholars believe that upwards of a million people would come to this city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover every year. When Israel was sent off into exile, a, a group in the 700s BC and another group in 586 BC were sent off into exile and as they were coming back into Jerusalem and allowed to return to the land, not everybody returned. They had left to go off to college because it was too cold in winter and they decided they would not come back except for those holidays like many of our family and friends do. But the law didn't change. The people were still required to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they would come from all over the Mediterranean world. And when you're walking weeks at a time, you don't often want to bring that ox or the pigeons in the cages or the sheep that you had at home. It was not easy to travel with those big animals, and so these entrepreneurs got some ideas. What if we made it easier for these pilgrims to come to celebrate the Passover, to come and worship, and so we'll provide a nice service and we'll be able to make a little bit of money. We'll sell them some oxen, we'll sell them some sheep, and we'll even sell some pigeons. But there's also a temple tax that's talked about in Leviticus that people were to pay to give an offering to God at the temple during Passover. And so as you're traveling from all over the world and you had money from Egypt and you had money from uh, different areas, uh, you didn't have the coins that they needed there in Jerusalem. So they would have people who would exchange money. And of course, the entrepreneurs are looking to make a little bit of money for themselves with a nice service fee. In some sense, this should not have surprised Jesus coming into the temple. You probably can imagine that he didn't bring his own oxen or own sheep or own pigeons to sacrifice. But what was troubling for Jesus was not what was taking place there. It was what was taking place in their hearts. Malachi 3 was a prophecy about this event in verse 1 and 2. It should be up on the screen. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure that day in his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I had to look up what a fuller was. I didn't know. And I forget what it was. It's somebody cleans like fabric or something. And so Jesus, he made a whip of cords and he drove out these animals. He turned over the money tables. He is angry. But he is still without sins as Hebrew 
Hebrews 4 says. Ephesians 4, 26 says this. Be angry and do not sin. And I think this is not an excuse that we would use to have anger when people are going against what we say for an excuse for the anger that we have at some times. And I think something should make us angry. Our state trying to pass an abortion law that anybody can have an abortion, that should make us angry. If your car is stolen, I think it's okay to be angry. But Jesus warns about anger in one's heart towards someone, not, in this case, towards something. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that being angry at someone is the equivalent of murder. Jesus is angry about the right things. He's not going around and punching people in the face. He's using the whip for the animals. It's not easy to get an oxen out of the temple. And that does not give us an excuse to whip people or post the things that we hate on social media about a person, maybe a politician. In your anger, friends, do not sin. Maybe you should pray for that person before you post about that person. Or maybe just don't post it at all. What's most important here is what Jesus says. And I think it helps us see the heart issue going on. In verse 16, he says emphatically, do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is a forceful command. And as one commentator says, he says, Jesus' complaint is not that you are, <clears throat> they are guilty of sharp business practices or should therefore reform their ethical life, but they should not be in the temple area at all doing what they're doing. Jesus' rebuke was because what was going on in their hearts, their greed, and most importantly, their irreverence for the house of God, the temple where God's people would come and worship. It was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a house of worship. And in verse 17, we see the disciples recall this prophecy from Psalm 69. And this wasn't remembered probably immediately right after Jesus said it. They were probably like, well, that did not go as we were expected. Do you think they're going to allow us to still sacrifice our animals and participate in this Passover celebration? And after the events unfold, maybe as they continued to walk with Jesus, as they continued to hear the teaching that he said, when they learned what he came to do, they beheld it with their own eyes. Maybe even after the resurrection, this came to mind from the Holy Spirit. Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. John only quotes in the text in this, uh, uh, this gospel the first half of the verse. But it points, friends, to Jesus' death and resurrections as a reproaches of those who reproach you. He's speaking for God. Those who sin against God, those reproaches have fallen on me, the text says, on God himself. Psalm 69, if you turn there in your Bibles, you'd see that it was written by 
King David, who would be the first in this kingly lineage through which Jesus would eventually come. These are not just empty words that the disciples remembered. They are fulfillment of real prophecy. And even in chapter 2, we are seeing the events point to the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And like we saw last week, how the good wine, this abundant wine, this overflowing wine was for the nations, so too this salvation comes from Jesus to all people, to all the nations. Isaiah 56 is another prophecy about these events. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus says this in the other gospels when he cleanses the temple. And the area where this cleansing took place was the place called the court of the Gentiles. It was not in the actual temple building. As God called the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations, there was this outer court, this area around the temple that the nations could come. They could pray. They could worship and participate and be with God's people as God's people were worshiping their God. And it was in this area where these exchangers, these animals, were having their business located. In the area where the nations were permitted to come and worship God, the people have God had made it impossible for them to come in because of their greed. And Jesus went after those who took away the free access of the nations to pray to the God of Israel because it was, had been converted into a place of selfishness and greed. The text says that Jesus had a zeal for the house of God. Zeal could also be translated as jealousy for the house of God. And I've mentioned this before. I think English and our culture doesn't really help us to understand what this biblical idea of jealousy is. We get it often mixed up with envy. Or envy is desiring something that is not yours. I'm, I'm envious of my friend's tractor or I'm envious of that family's vacation. But biblical jealousy is different, and I think it's okay. It's this zeal, where it's jealousy and wanting that which you are actually entitled to. So if someone takes away my children, I would be jealous to go get them back because they are mine. That's this zeal, that's this jealousy that Jesus is referring to here, where he is zealous and he is jealous for people to worship God in the temple. Friends, God does not tolerate irreverence. And this event here in the temple is an invitation to worship God from one's heart without the craziness, without the distractions for the people who come to worship God. Jesus cleansing the temple, it shows God's desire for pure worship, a right relationship with him. And especially when it's happening in the places designated to happen in the church or in the temple. And so question, do we have this sort of zeal ourselves? What distracts us from coming to God to worship? 
What distracts us from inviting others to come and worship with us? The first thing that came to my mind was that thing in our pockets that buzzes all the time. It beeps to get our attention. Every Sunday I try to put my phone on Do Not Disturb and now I'm thinking I might not have done it this morning. I don't personally need the distractions when I'm up here opening God's word for you all. But your phones, they beep, they buzz, they want you to be distracted. They want to get your attention. They want to cause you to buy something. Maybe you can leave them in your cars or even at home. Or maybe I'll put a basket in my office that everybody can just pop their phone in when they come in on a Sunday and just make sure that you take yours with you when you leave. Friends, I think the important point here is that we come to worship God with our full attention, with our full affections, on Sundays and on Wednesdays with each other to give God the glory that He is due. Our enemies would love nothing more than to distract us when I share the gospel like we do every Sunday or when we explain what the text means and we're distracted because we focus on a word that was used or when we might not like the song that we are singing at that time and we don't really think about the words that are being sung. Fortunately, around here, football games, they start a little bit later after service starts on a Sunday. But in California, the game started at 10 a.m. So you could be up front and you could see that glow of someone's phone checking their fantasy football scores during service. Friends, I think it's okay and we should ask God to help us to not be distracted when we gather here to worship. When that song isn't my favorite, God, help me to focus on the words we are singing when I don't understand what the preacher is trying to explain, God, give me the faith to believe it anyway. When the train goes by and honks jingle bells like it did, help me not to hear it, unless that's a really fun song you like to sing. Friends, let's make this place a place where the nations can come to worship with us. Let's be a welcoming people, getting out of the way of those who come to behold our God. Let's welcome them. Let's greet them. Let's show those who come into this building a smile. We could do that, right? We can smile. Maybe not go all up to this new person that comes into the door all at once and scare them away, but we can be a welcoming people. Let's be a place where folks who are not part of this family can come and be welcomed as if they could maybe eventually become part of this church family themselves. And I think that's the reaction that Jesus wanted from the Jews in the temple that day. But unfortunately, they didn't get it. Their reverence was absent, so Jesus started talking to them about his resurrection. We'll pick it back up in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this temple itself, the focal point of where God and his people meet, where God accepts believers because of the bloody sacrifice of animals, will be superseded by another temple, another sacrifice. Last week we saw that the water turning to wine in verse 11 was the first of Jesus' signs. But here, these Jews, they demanded more signs. And if I was Jesus, I probably would have been like, well, you should have been at the wedding, but because you're so cranky, you're not invited. The use of the term sign here is, in this context, is a bit different. What you were looking for was Jesus' justification to say the things that he said and to do the things that he did. But Jesus refuses to become a magician report or performing signs for their benefit. And as I was studying for this passage, I was reminded of the words in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses gives the people of Israel a warning about false prophets. Moses says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. These Jews were already looking for ways to kill Jesus. They, don't, they didn't grasp who Jesus was and why he was there that day. And he said, but they do, sorry, they didn't grasp who Jesus is here in this particular context or what he said he will do. Their regime that was in place managing the temple was vulnerable. But Jesus makes it clear to them, it's not about the money. It's not about the exchanging of fees. It's not even about the animals. It's about his death and his resurrection. And as we saw last week, that all marriages, they, they point to Christ, to Jesus and his church. The temple here is about Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mention this reference of the sign of Jonah, that Jesus would be in, like Jonah was, in the belly of the fish or the whale or whatever it was for three days and three nights. And Jesus repeatedly predicted his death, that he would die and resurrect after three days. And this threat and this destruction of the temple and this desecration of the temple or other places of worship that Jesus said, these Jews were coming because it was a capital offense and they were angry. It was a capital offense in this Greco-Roman world. And so they questioned Jesus. How can you do this? It took so long to build this temple. If you're following along with our Bible reading plans, we just finished in Nehemiah today. The last book we did was Ezra, right before Nehemiah. And, and this is the temple that was 
the temple that Jesus was in that day, that Ezra had come back with Zerubbabel and Jeshua to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls around the temple. It was completed in 516 B.C. In the first century B.C., Herod, the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus as he was born, expanded the temple to this court of the Gentiles area. It took 46 years for Herod to expand the temple. It still wasn't even completed when they said that it took 46 years. There was another 30 years of construction that would happen. They just didn't get it. They, they didn't get that Jesus was referring to another temple. And I think we could be honest. Sometimes we don't get it either. John, in verse 21, he shares an explanation where the apostles finally connected the dots eventually that he was speaking of his body and his death and his resurrection. And John is taking account of what is happening in the context, but he's also taking a moment to explain to us, to explain things for the readers, to see theology, and let's not miss it. I think believe, uh, Hebrews 10.1 helps us here. The author of Hebrews, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of things of reality, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could not make people perfect. Only Jesus can. Jesus is the final and full ex expression of what was only a shadow in the Old Testament, where the Passover was a shadow pointing to Jesus. The temple is a shadow pointing to Jesus. The sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed on Passover in the temple was a shadow pointing to Jesus. And we see John more fully see this in the book of Revelation a couple of decades later. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, when he had a vision of heaven. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And if you call back in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, where Jesus came to do that in his death. But he doesn't remain dead. He raises. And this risen Lamb becomes the new temple in heaven. It all comes full circle. And John the Evangelist is honest here. And John... Verse 22 When therefore he was raised from the dead, not that day, when they were standing with him in the temple, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures, the words that Jesus had spoken. They didn't understand it the day when the words were coming out of Jesus' mouth, but they eventually did, about three years later. And just like us, it takes time. Sometime, oftentimes, to grasp these deep truths, this deep theology in God's Word. And I think it's okay to admit that. Our events today in the Gospel of John point us to the nature of Christ, His work as revealer, explaining what is happening, who He is, what He came to do. But most importantly, it points to us 
his work as Redeemer. As the temple was desecrated, Jesus cleansed it. Whereas Jesus was eventually desecrated on the cross, but it was for our cleansing, for those who believe in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It tabernacled with us. So Jesus pitched his tent, we saw in John chapter 1, among his people. The temple as well is a sign pointing to that Emmanuel, God with us, the new temple, the crucified and risen Son of God. And a reminder from Deuteronomy again. He said this, When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of it. If Jesus' words had failed, they did have justification to kill him. But his words didn't fail. They killed him anyway. The word who became flesh would be the end of all sacrifices, all Passovers, all temples, because, friends, God's word always comes true. And so every Sunday, as we gather here as a church, we desire to open up God's word and show you how to see the gospel. It might not be the actual explanation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but it could be our need for a savior. It could be God's faithfulness to save us as he promised he said he would. It could be explicit as it is stated here in our text this morning, or it could be very subtly. We call you to read your Bibles. We want to give you tools as you are reading your Bibles in your own homes, with your own families, to see the gospel and to apply it to your lives. And it's okay if it doesn't make sense out the gate the first time you read it. It's okay to take some time to ask God to help you to understand. And it wasn't immediate. It took three years for the disciples to get it. To, and they were the ones who heard Jesus' actual voice, who saw Jesus' actual actions. And so I think it's okay if we can acknowledge that there's things that we don't completely understand today. But the end is coming. We do need to believe. We do need to trust. We do need to have faith that God keeps his promises and the gospel saves his people from their sins. And that's what's most important here this morning. These Jews, they were concerned about a building. They were, con Jesus though, he was concerned about their salvation. God's house was to be a house of reverence, but it was also a way to point people to Jesus' coming resurrection because Jesus knew the reality of their hearts and the reality of their sins. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about, him, about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is a reality check. Jesus, he knows their heart. He knows your heart. Jesus knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows all of our hearts. Let that sink in because Jesus died 
to rise because he knows your heart. I saw this over this past week when someone said this. Neither your accomplishments nor your failures, neither your victories nor your trials define you. God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you right now, where you are, whatever you're going through. And John says that many believed because of these events. Many believed in Jesus after he turned water into wine as well as we saw last week. And you see that these events of Jesus in the Gospel of John start to continue to connect this purpose of John in his Gospel writing. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When John wrote this gospel years later, he knew Jesus performed many signs, and people said they believed in them. John also knew that Jesus died, and while Jesus had no intention of abandoning his believers, the disciples could not avoid abandoning him. And they do so a few times in this gospel. When we read the stories in the gospel of John, we must not treat them as just stories of the past. They're, in fact, living portraits of humanity, of you and I, for every era. But these words ought to stand out as a warning. It's not a means to question our salvation, but rather point us to the fact that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We cannot dupe God into our life of belief. He knows us, and I think that should cause us to desire to persevere, but also trust Him to save us from our sins. And unlike other religious leaders, Jesus cannot be duped by flattery. He can't be cut off by our ignorance. He cannot, we cannot blame others for our distractions. Jesus' knowledge of man's heart is profound. And Jesus, as he will continue to interact with people throughout this gospel, he knows their hearts and he approaches them in very different ways, differently as individuals. And it is beautiful. We'll see one with Nicodemus next week. Friends, God requires reverence and holiness, especially within the household of God. But because we are not holy, Jesus dies in our place on the cross for our sins and he resurrects to give us a newness of life because he has a realization and perfect knowledge of who we are and what we need. Friends, we need a savior. And Jesus wants to be that Savior for sinners like us. Hebrews 10, I think, is a good reminder in light of this passage. If you want to turn there, picking up in verse 19. As this pastor writing this letter to the Hebrews is encouraging the believers who he's writing to. 
he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, the day is drawing near. Let's fear God, the holy God. Let's be holy, for God is holy. Let's tell others about Jesus and not hinder their approach to come before the throne of grace themselves. The people in the temple, they were complacent, allowing the distractions of the world to distort their thinking, but may that never be so of us here. And so is our life is the life of this church, is it attractive? So that, like the Jews attracted the nations to come, the Gentiles to come to worship, that we would be a place that would be attractive for others to come and be part of this body of Christ. That it would be attractive to those who live in houses by us or the people behind us in the checkout line or the people we give the money to at the restaurant. But friends, we need God's word and we need each other to help us make it to the end. I think that's what this author in Hebrews is going after, where we know each other. We know the good, we know the bad, and we know the ugly, and we can help each other because we've all received grace upon grace, and so we can give grace to each other and remind each other of the gospel. And when we fail, not if we fail, God's grace is sufficient, and he still loves us, and that keeps us going. And Jesus makes it possible for us to keep going. Knowing who we once were, he loves us enough to die for us. And he raised us to give us a newness of life so that we can worship God ourselves for who he is and what he has done. And that's what we get to do now as we invite the worship team back up with our singing, with our prayers, and with our giving of our tithes and offerings. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning where we get to come together. God, would you help us to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth? Would you take away the distractions of the things around us or the things in our mind so that we might praise you, to glorify you? God, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place on the cross. God, that he rose to give us a newness of life even when you knew our hearts, your enemies, you still loved us. 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. And so, God, we desire to worship you, a great and mighty God who is full of grace to us. And so, God, be glorified in the rest of our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and worship with